So Colossians chapter three, I'm gonna read this text. We're gonna finish up these household rules that we started a few weeks ago. I'm gonna pray and then we'll dive into it. Colossians three, starting in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us that's alive, that it is in um, a really profound and tangible and vital way our life Um, that it is our bread that we get to feast on today. We praise you for this gift. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for all that you reveal to us as the word made flesh now in this word in our hands and spirit. We praise you for enlightening our our minds and opening our eyes to be able to understand it all. Uh, We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask that you would move now in a transformative way in ways that only you can as your word is preached. Pray for your glory. Amen. So we're going to be talking about work today, and um, I want to start out this conversation about work by reading some really depressing uh, statistics that I found about your job this past week. In fact, it was uh, it was an article written by the Business Insider, and the article is called "17 Seriously Disturbing Facts About Your Job." Are you ready? Come on, guys. We're going to get we're going to get interactive today. Are you ready? Okay, good. <laughs> First. Did you know that the average person in America will spend more than 90,000 hours in his or her lifetime at work? Amen, yes. Did you know that the average American spends more than 100 hours commuting every year? It's a lot of audible (laughs) or fantasy football or whatever you listen to. At the same time, get this, 87% of American workers don't have any passion for our jobs whatsoever, and 80% of us are totally dissatisfied with our jobs. And some of you are like, that is me. You're always looking for the move. 60% of Americans say their jobs are making them insomniacs. 25% say that their jobs are their number one source of stress in their lives. Nearly half of America has gained weight at their current job. I don't know why this is there. This makes me feel bad about myself. Not only this, um, but all this stress in the workplace has actually made uh, workplace environments the number five leading cause of death in the U.S. you believe that? No. No. (laughs) Trisha, thank you. Come on. Stanford professor Jeffrey Pfeiffer wrote in his book, Dying for a Paycheck, that more than 120,000 people die every year because of long hours, high demands, and stress in the workplace. In other words, on average, most of us will spend 90,000 hours of our lives doing something that at the very least gives us zero meaning or we just don't like, and at the very worst is literally going to kill us. Good times. Now, this is a huge problem for us today because study after study has shown that what you want and what I want more than anything is a good job. Well, maybe not more than anything, 
but we want good jobs. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your socioeconomic state, year you were born in, whatever, you wanna find a good job. And, and it's an even bigger deal for, for my generation. I'm the old millennial. We got some millennials in here for Gen Z because we don't just wanna work for a paycheck. We really wanna work a job that gives us a sense of meaning. We really want a job that makes us feel like we're making a difference in the world. That, you know, we're, we're not just going to some job. We're like, going to change the world. And that's really significant. Um, we don't just want to make money. We want meaning. We want a sense of fulfillment. We want a sense of identity. Work is not just work. Work is life. In fact, I read another article, and I'm sorry I'm going to bore you with a lot of articles today, uh, but one article in The Atlantic said the best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office, not to show, but to be in the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel the most themselves. That's why you spend 70 hours, 80 hours a week, because this is life for you. See why this is such a big deal. If work is where you get your meaning, and work is where you get your purpose and your identity, and at the same time, 87% of you don't have any passion for your work or in your work, does that mean you're thriving right now and you're flourishing? Does that mean that you're living life the way that God designed it to be lived, which was to the fullest? Well, no, of course not. So this is a huge problem. Now, the really amazing thing about our passage today in Colossians 3 is, this is what I'm gonna show you today, is the fact that if Jesus is sitting on the throne of our lives, if we have made him king, then everything changes about work. Everything changes not just about the way we view work, but the way we go about it day in and day out. And as a result, our well-being, our thriving and our flourishing in this life and in a way that leads to thriving and flourishing for all eternity. So look back at the text and I'm gonna show you exactly what I mean. It starts out by saying, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. <laughs> we'll just stop there, okay? Because that doesn't sound great. In fact, the word in the Greek for bond servants is doulos, and it's the same word for slave. And so some of your Bibles might translate that slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So this is a really tough verse, and we have to answer some, some questions before I can show you why this is good for you and good for me in the 21st century where slavery is not a thing. So one of the questions we need to answer is why in the world is Paul telling slaves to obey their masters and masters to be kind to their slaves? That's a big question. Why isn't he telling slaves to fight for their freedom? Why isn't he telling masters to liberate their slaves? That, that would be gospel, right? That's what you would expect the Bible to say, equality, liberation, oneness. In fact, 10 verses before this, in Colossians 3 verses 11, he says here, there's not Greek, there's not Jew, there's not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. So he's literally just said, there is no slave and there is no free person, there is no master. And then 10 verses later, he says, slaves, obey your masters and masters be kind to your slaves. This is the kind of stuff that if you're reading the Bible and you see something, you just like skim over it as fast as you can. You pretend it's not there because it sounds like a contradiction at best and it sounds awful, like anti-Jesus at worst. What's going on here? There's no such thing as a slave. 
Slaves, obey your masters. Now, for us to make sense of this passage, for us to understand what it has to do with us today, again, like we do every single Sunday, we got to understand what it meant back then. Because if we don't get that, we're not going to get what it means for us today. And so a couple of things we need to know about back then, first century. First of all, slavery was um, incredibly common in the Roman Empire. That doesn't make it right, but I'm going to build a case. So don't turn me off right now. Don't stone me. Don't get out your lettuce and your tomatoes and start pelting me. Um, but slavery was unbelievably common. In fact, there's an estimated 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire, which is half of the population. We're almost half of the population. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was a vital part of their economy, their way of life. And so the reason that's important is because if the apostle Paul called um, basically the Christian community to demolish slavery would have been to put a massive target on their backs that they couldn't even bear because they were already outlaws. Christians were already in the process of being hunted down for their faith. They were meeting in private and in secret. They were thrown in prison. They were tortured. They were thrown to the lions at the Colosseum. If you've ever been to Rome, gladiators, that was a real thing. And Christians were meat, okay? And so Christians had no power to do anything in society. They had no standing. They couldn't get up on a soapbox and be like, Jesus said to let your slaves go. They had no ability to do that. They were hiding. They were being thrown to the lions themselves. The second thing that you need to know is that, and this is really important, Slavery in the first century, especially at this time, was a lot different than slavery here uh, not too long ago. It had nothing to do with race. Uh, it had nothing to do with identity. It was a situation that you were um, not necessarily born into. Um, it was also a situation that you could buy your way out of. It was a lot like indentured servitude. Slaves had rights as human beings. Aristotle called them tools with souls. So they could marry, they could start families, they could own property, all of this stuff. On top of this, by the time Paul is writing this letter, there were several reforms throughout the Roman Empire and, and so much so that they were being treated as human beings. If a master misused his slave, he would be held accountable. He would be taken to court. He would be tried and convicted. You couldn't just abuse these people that were your indentured servants. On and on and on. So in the Christian community, the gospel has started blowing up this massive cultural institution of slavery because the gospel says there is no slave and there is no free. And so by the third century, slavery's gone. I mean, it's just, the gospel is laying the foundation to eliminate slavery. And it's already started doing that in these communities. Slaves aren't just tools with souls. They're equal partakers of the gospel. They're equal heirs of glory. That's what Colossians is all about. And so even though the gospel hadn't eliminated slavery in the Roman Empire, and I'm gonna put in parentheses yet, it was already laying that foundation. All of these things that were dividing these people were being eliminated, they had become one. But here's the most important thing, track with me. This is what we have to see about this passage. And this is the key to understanding how this really strange passage that you might skip over if you're reading in your quiet time is really good news for you. And that's the fact that Paul isn't writing about the rightness or the wrongness of the institution of slavery here. He's writing about the mindsets and he's writing about the motivations and the priorities and all of this stuff that's behind work between slaves and masters. This is huge for us because that means that there are principles that we can actually take and apply. Even though we're not slaves and we're not masters and that's good that it's done with, we still work. We still have bosses. So 
just follow me here. If, if Paul had said, slaves, never leave your masters because they own you. Well, let's, for, for clarity, he would never say that. But let's just imagine that he did say that. Um, we wouldn't be able to do anything with it because it wouldn't apply at all and it's anti-gospel. But he didn't say that. What he says is, slaves or servants or bond servants, obey your masters. Be hard workers. Don't be people pleasers, serve the Lord. He's talking about purposes and priorities and meanings and motivations behind their work. So in other words, if you're a boss, be kind to your employees. If you're an employee, submit to the leadership of your boss, no matter what he's like, obey, do your job. These principles have everything to do with how we go about our work, which is why we're talking about work today. This is where the gospel brings hope in what I would say is a hopeless landscape in our culture of work. I know some of you guys are burning at both ends and, and you're working 70, 80 hours and you're told that this is good because you watch all the entrepreneurs on YouTube and you read their books and they tell you this is what life is. You got your main job and then you have your side hustle and then your, your, your other side hustle and you're trying to retire by whatever, some crazy number. Um, this is what it means to thrive in life. It's, it's not, it's hopeless. So I got hope for you today. The gospel brings hope and it does it in two ways. First, the gospel infuses our work with new priorities. Infuses our work with new priorities. Look back at verse 22 and where Paul says, bond servants obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He's talking about priorities here. He's talking about why you do what you do. What are the motives behind your work? In other words, when Jesus is ruling in our lives, when Christ is above all, when he's on the throne and we're not, he gives us new whys, whys for everything we do, new reasons for everything we do. You see, we're all motivated by something when it comes to work. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the stuff that money can buy. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's just a pat on the back. Naturally, our motivations, though, are almost always about what other people think of us. Like, there's a reason that we drive the cars that we drive, because it's telling the people around us something about ourselves that we want them to know, about how important we are, how smart we are, how gifted we are, or whatever. We, we care about what other people think about us. We care about what our bosses think, maybe, our peers, our coworkers, our family, our neighbors. There's, there's a reason that we gotta keep up with the Joneses like a, a saying, because we're all thinking about what other people are doing. We're always comparing. We actually want people to see us, and maybe if you're an introvert, you're like, no, I don't. Um, we want people to at least notice and appreciate us. To say like, you matter. You, you have value. You bring something to this company. You're doing a good job. We want to be seen and valued and appreciated. Naturally, we are people pleasers. I think one of the most obvious ways this shows up even outside of work is when I'm driving on independence. And independence is about five lanes at one point, and then it gets down to three. And in that stretch, it's like NASCAR. It is like everyone is weaving in and out, and they're cutting each other off, and you've got some 
wise people that do that, who do it well in a non-dangerous way, non-threatening way, who drive well. I'm trying to make myself feel better right now. Um, and then you have other people who do that like total jerks, right? And they are like taking their life in their own hand and our life in their own hand. And it's crazy. It's NASCAR. It's open season. Then all of a sudden you see a cop. And what happens? Everyone learns how to drive the speed limit. Like instantaneously, it just happens. And, and sometimes you'll see the person going slow, and you're like, why are you going so slow? And then you see the cop and you're like, oh, okay. It was a warning. I got it. Everyone goes slow. I'm not a NASCAR guy, but I think in NASCAR, they have this thing called like a caution flag. It's a yellow flag. And so like, that's what a cop is. It's like someone's waving the yellow flag and everyone's going slow and we're following the pace car. And then the cop exits off of independence and it's like the green flag waves again and everyone's like, and it's Mad Max. It's, it's, we're back at it. This is what it means to be a people pleaser. This is what it looks like to do things by way of eye service. We, we care so much about what people think about us. And if we can get away with something when people are watching, we'll do it. If someone can get us in trouble though, we won't. And this is what Paul is trying to get at. It's not the right way of thinking about life in general. And it's certainly not the right way of thinking about work. Don't be a people pleaser. You gotta have a bigger priority than that. Now this has massive implications for work. In fact, salary.com, I didn't even know it was a website, but it is. Salary.com surveyed 750 employees, and you got to see this. Five, um, sorry, 750 employees of Fortune 500 companies, and they found out that 89% of respondents waste time on a daily basis. These are the stats here, if you can read this. 31% 30 minutes a day, 31% an hour a day, 16% two hours a day, 6% 6% three hours a day, 2% four hours a day, 2% five hours a day. And, and this is what's hilarious. They weren't just on Facebook and they weren't just on YouTube. They actually confessed and admitted to all of the different things that they do to waste time when no one's looking. One lady said she likes to take sponge baths in the sink, <laughs> in the bathroom. No witnesses? Okay. Um, one guy spent time trying to hypnotize his coworkers to get them to stop smoking, which I think is pretty noble. I mean, good for him. <laughs> Maybe illegal, but noble. Um, one lady visited a tanning bed instead of making deliveries, priorities again. Um, another took her pet bird and hid it in the office and was taking care of her pet bird. This is an Angela situation. You're like, fold out, <laughs> get that drawer out. And there's a bird there. Like she's taking care of this bird. One guy looked for a mail order bride. Um, one guy knifed his employee's car tires. Um, another guy took naps on his CEO's couch. And another guy, I feel like this is the worst of the worst, got on social media and left bad reviews about his own company while his company is paying him. It's crazy. The, this, is, this is what's startling. The salary.com concluded this article with, with this um, paragraph. The problem of disengaged workers wasting time in the office is so significant that it's costing the U.S. economy $150 billion every year. And this was in 2014, before you got to work at home in your PJs. (laughs) 
Now all you have to do, I was talking to some guys this past week, this is news to me. Um, evidently you have like a green light that tells your boss if you're active. So now all you have to do is you just have to move that mouse every five minutes and your boss thinks you're like cranking it out. One guy who will not go named, he's doing the slides though. Um, he, uh, he told me that he's figured out, and maybe he didn't figure this out, maybe somebody told him this, but he's figured out you can open up a Word document and you can get a weight and put it on the space bar and you never have to refresh your computer. <laughs> I don't think he does this. I hope he doesn't do this. What incredible innovation. And they said millennials wouldn't change the world. <laughs> Guys, I read a report again this last week. Nine out of 10 employees admit to drinking on the job. Nine out of 10. And 83% of them at least twice a week. Again, this is what it means to be a people pleaser, to do things by way of eye service. You've got your coffee mug and you're on Zoom and, and everyone thinks you're really pumped for the day and you've got your coffee or your tea in there and you're just getting caffeinated and it is not coffee. It is not tea. And some of you are like, oh no. Let me ask you a question. Why do you do what you do at your job? Like, what's your motivation? What makes you a hard worker? or an honest worker? What, what makes you wake up in the morning and drive your 30-minute route and you show up and you sit at your desk and you're like, you know what? I'm not slacking off today. I'm going to give it my best. What is it? The approval of people isn't enough. People are not a big enough God. Because if you make people your God and their perception of you reality, you know what that forces you to be? Paul says, insincere in your heart. You could, you could go back and circle that phrase. I don't know how your Bible translates it. Write up your Bibles, guys. It's a good thing to do. Just circle that word and then you can put a line and you can write the word hypocrite. That's what it forces you to become. When you live for the approval of people, when they become your God and their opinion and their perception becomes reality, you become insincere in your heart, which means you're not real. You're one person to them and you're one person to them and you wear different masks and as soon as they leave, the real you comes out. It's not big enough. And that means it turns 90,000 hours of your life into an exercise in fraud. Guys, listen, we value authenticity and we're really good at finding um, irony in other people and inconsistency in other people and saying like, oh, you said you cared about the environment, but you were eating out of that, re that, that disposable plastic thing. And, I remember when Greta Thunberg, I think that's how you say her name, she was like riding on a subway and she had some like pudding on her, uh, on her little desk thing and she's riding on this train to some conference to talk about the environment and she's just eating some pudding, totally innocent. Man, you would have thought she killed someone. Oh, you're such a hypocrite. I see that pudding container. We're so good at finding this stuff in other people. And we say, I know I'm real. I would never be a hypocrite like that. Not me. I'm, I can see it in other people, but not me. 
Let me just tell you something, guys. If you are working for the approval of others, you are already on the path to being an inauthentic person, which means you are not living life the way that God designed you to live it. Thriving and flourishing means living in the truth. Loving the truth. And so people are not a big enough motivation. This is what it means to fear the Lord. And this is why Paul says, don't be people pleasers. Don't just do stuff when other people are looking, but fear the Lord. That means Make him your top priority. Care more about what he thinks of you than the people around you. His approval is your motivation now. You think of that person at work that you want to impress more than anyone else. Keep that person there, but just take him down a rung and put Jesus above that person. His opinion is the most important. He knows the real you. And so I guess the big question is, what would it look like for you to live as if he and his opinion mattered? What would it look like for you to go about your day as if God were actually with you, that his spirit was inside of you? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would mean that you would become, and this is absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, you would become the hardest worker in your job. You would become the most honest worker at your office. You would be the most joyful and most dependable worker in your company. The green light on your computer would always be on. And it wouldn't be because you figured out a way to weight down the space bar in a Word document. It would be because you were actually sitting there cranking it out. You wouldn't have to have a boss looking over your shoulder to stay engaged because you would get the fact that the boss of the universe is always there. There has never been a moment in your life where you have been alone. Never. Jesus says, listen, I'm here. I see it all. I'm I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer of everything. I want to rule your life and I'm going to reward you for everything you do in my name. What would it look like for us to actually live like that? I remember the worst job I ever had. I was in college up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and uh, I, uh, I was riding to Walmart with my, with my buddy because in, there was nothing to do in Scranton. It is as miserable as you would imagine. And um, there's a Walmart about 20 minutes away in Dixon City. And that was where the party was. And so if you wanted to hang out off campus, you had to go to Walmart. And so we're going to Walmart. And on our way to Walmart, we saw this big sign that said, now hiring. And, and it was like telemarketer, now hiring. We're like telemarketing, that sounds fun. And so we pulled in there, and we we became telemarketers. And um, our manager, our boss, was crazy. She was this Latina woman. She was in her mid-30s. She had been shot in the face in a gunfight. And so she had a glass eye, and it was always looking in a weird direction. So she'd be staring at you, but you wouldn't know if she was staring at you. And if you asked, she'd get really mad at you. And she was always showing how tough she was, and she was always... Um, mad at us because we weren't that great at our, at our job. Um, there would be so many times where we'd just be minding our business at this table. We had our headsets sent at this table. You'd hang up the phone and, and the phone would instantly start calling someone else. And someone would pick up the phone and you didn't even know it was ringing. It was just like that. And my friend Rich is right here and I'm right here. And we're just minding our own business, calling people. And then all of a sudden we'd feel like, I think she's staring at me with her one eye right now. 
and you'd get that sense and, and you'd look and she'd be right there looking over your shoulder. And it was like a horror movie. It was a jump scene. You'd be like, ah, that's what it was. And then she'd yell at us for not being good at our jobs. If you made a sale, you got to go ring a bell and then you got to go dance over to the whiteboard and put a tally under your name. We sold timeshares. We did it for two days and then we quit. It was awful. <laughs> now, there's something that I realized in that moment though that I've never realized before in all of my jobs is that when she was around and when she was looking over my shoulder, it did something to me. Like it made me sit up straight. It made me not slack off and, and joke around with Rich about the people that we were on the phone with. It, it made us get the script out and go verbatim through it. Like we wanted to, like we believed in timeshares. This is the greatest thing in the world and you need this. There was something about her looking over our shoulder that was a motivation like no other. Guys, this is what Colossians 3 is saying. When Jesus becomes the Lord of your life, when he gets on the throne of your heart, he becomes that person that is always with you, that's always watching. And, and he promises, listen, I'm with you and I'm watching and I love you, but whatever you do in this life, someday I'm gonna reward. So do a good job. Do a good job. He's right there with us and his approval of our work matters. And so that's our new motivation, not to please people, not because we care about what they think, but to please him because we care about what he thinks. Second, the gospel infuses our work with new purpose. Look back at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now we're talking about reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. A couple years ago, this is so fascinating to me, Harvard Business Review published an article telling readers that if you want to find meaning in your job, if you want to have purpose in your work, you need to change the way you think about it. Now that's obvious, but the main point of the article is if you aren't finding meaning and purpose in your job, there are four shifts that you need to make. And it, the article lays out these four shifts. You know what was really fascinating to me about this article though? Two of the four shifts that Harvard Business Review said that we need to make in order to find meaning in our jobs are straight out of Colossians 3. The first one is that we need to connect our work to service. You wanna find meaning in your job? View your job as more than just a job. View it as a way of serving others. And then second, remember why you work. Now look at how the author put it and I'll quote, who are you working for? Identify that person or a group of people. When the hours are difficult or the tasks are unglamorous, remember that your work is an act of service for those you care about in your personal life. Keeping this front of mind will help you tie more purpose into your work, even when accomplishing the most tedious tasks. Now, essentially what that is saying is if you wanna find meaning and you want to find purpose, and you want to find joy in your job, don't worry about the task. Don't think about what the job actually is. Think about who you're doing the job for. That's revolutionary. And this is why Paul's words are so important for us. He says, obey your masters with fear, with trembling, with a sincere heart, 
as you would Christ, as if you're serving the king of the universe. Everything you do, no matter how menial or tedious or insignificant it might seem, do that as if you are serving him. He becomes the one you are working for. Guys, this is so incredible because this means that your work, no matter what it is, isn't just a job. It's a divine calling. There are a lot of people that think there's only like two or three divine callings in the world. Like if you work for a nonprofit or you help the poor, or maybe you're a doctor, or you, you help the sick, or maybe you're a missionary and, and you're spreading the gospel or whatever. Like there's some divine callings and there's everything else. Like telemarketer, <laughs> direct sales. Um, man, direct sales, is that MLMs? Maybe I just like, I don't know if that's, I'm not going to step on that. Never mind. I just was about to open a can of worms that I am not prepared to open right now. <laughs> Let's just move on. You could be doing the most uninspiring, undesirable thing in the world. You could be doing anything and be carrying out a divine calling. And I know this is true because remember, Paul is writing to literal slaves and these literal slaves are doing the most menial, uninspiring, undesirable things in the world. Things like sweeping the floors, things like making the meals and doing the laundry and teaching these kids that aren't their own and plowing the fields that aren't their own and managing money that they'd never own. It wasn't like a soul-sucking nine-to-five corporate America. This was a 24-7 Roman servitude. And Paul is saying, whatever you do, it matters. It's a divine calling on your life because you're not serving this master, you're serving that one. It's significant, it means something, and it will last for all eternity. He sees what you're doing, he cares about what you're doing, and someday you're gonna be rewarded for it. That's really good news, guys. For you, it might be, punching data into a computer. It might be preparing tax information or grading papers or making sales calls. I know we have like the sales department of Town Square right over there, pretty much. Um, you could be moving storage containers, Mike. You could be doing curating and you could be networking on social media and building a brand. You could be starting a business. You could be doing all kinds of different things that feel like it has no meaning or no significance eternally, but it does. You're doing more than earning a paycheck. Some of you moms right now are managing your home and you're not even getting a paycheck for it. And uh, I know my wife is in this boat. She's so gifted. She's so talented. She gave up her career in teaching. Now she's teaching our kids because iPads are awful. Um, teachers. And... Uh, yeah, you're not getting a paycheck for it. it. I talked about it last week. I talked about how parenting is like trying to snuff, uh, shovel the snow in your driveway while there's still a blizzard going on, <laughs> okay? And like, it's just, it's crazy. It's unrewarding. And you're like, is there any point to this? Yes, there is. It matters for eternity. You'll be rewarded for it. Guys, it doesn't matter what situation you're in right now. Your job has meaning, not because of what your job is, but because of who you're doing your job for. And I need you to hear this because I can't tell you how many conversations I have like this week after week, month after month of people telling me, I think I need a new job because this one's not fulfilling me. 
This one's not giving me any meaning. I feel like it's, you know, it's, I'm not getting any joy out of my job. And listen, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but what I am telling you right now is that if you're looking for meaning from a job and not a person, you're never gonna find meaning. There's only one person in the entire world that can give your life meaning. And he's not like someone you can touch and see. He's not that peer or that boss or that coworker. He is the king of the universe. And so you could find the best job in the world, but if he isn't your main motivation, it's not gonna satisfy your soul. It's not about what your job is, it's about who gave it to you. Whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do, sky's the limit. And if I've offended any multi-level marketers in here, even that, okay, like whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It matters. It's significant. It's not nothing if you're serving the Lord Christ. So again, if you punch data in to a computer all day, every day, you punch it in as if God himself asked you to do it. If you prepare someone's taxes, do it as if he's the one who gave them to you. Every time you make a meal or clean a room, do it as if the king of the universe was coming over for dinner. Whether you're grading a paper, making a call, moving a container, trying a case for our lawyers, treating a patient for our doctors, making an investment for all you bankers, starting a business, whatever. I just remember we got some professional athletes in here, whether you're hitting a ball or scoring a goal. Whatever you do, do it as if it was a mission given to you by the one who is above all things with the confidence that one day he's gonna reward you for it. The measuring rod of success, if you hear anything else, the measuring rod of success is not what you do. It's who you do it for. That's the message of Colossians 3. There's so much freedom in that, guys. Next time you're at a party and someone asks you what you do, I got, man, I gotta tell you about my master, king of the universe. He created everything and he's given me this really incredible job and, and I serve him. I, I, I know you're not gonna say it like that. That's like, that's like 35 year old, like dad talk. I don't know how you're gonna say it. What you do is not as important as who you do it for. Listen, when Jesus infuses our work with his motive and when he infuses our work with his meaning, everything changes. I could give you so many more things, but we don't have time. We will be the best workers, the best teachers, the best doctors, the best bankers, the best lawyers, the most honest of all, the most joyful of all. And here's the amazing thing. When we don't live for the approval of people, do you know what starts to happen? People notice. <laughs> it's, it's this circle, virtuous circle of, I am free from your opinion, but now I work so hard that you have a good opinion of me. And then they start coming out of the woodworks and they're like, why are you the way that you are? Like, where did you get your joy from? Because we got the same job and I don't have joy. Where do you get your drive? Where do you get your passion? This job is miserable. Why are you happy? This makes no sense. And when they ask you those questions, do you know what you get to do? 
the main thing, the most important thing, the reason that God didn't just swoop you up to heaven as soon as he saved you, the reason he left you here on this planet to point people to him. That's why we're here. That's ultimately why we work. So we could show them the glory and the goodness and the beauty of the God that we serve. I heard a story this past week, and I'll close with this, about a guy named Dan who worked a union job at a food warehouse. Every single word in that sentence was just awful to me. Before he became a Christian, uh, he was a thief, and he'd steal from his food warehouse every time he got the chance. And uh, he talked about how uh, every once in a while, they'd have a power outage and the lights would be down for a few minutes and he and two of his friends would sprint in the dark to the crab meat section and they'd crack open the crab meat and they would stuff their faces with crab meat. And then the lights would come back on. They would have put the crab meat away. They have it all over them. They smell like crab meat. The whole warehouse smells like crab meat, but no one saw them do it. And so no one could get them in trouble. And so he did this over and over and over again. Then Jesus saves him and he's changed instantly in so many different ways and he's immediately convicted about stealing and so he does the math and he figures out that he probably stole about $750 worth of crab meat from his company and so he goes to his supervisor that's a lot of crab meat by the way he goes to his uh he goes to his supervisor and he says listen I just became a Christian I've been born again Jesus has saved me I'm a new man and um, I need to confess this to you. I stole probably about $750 worth of crab meat. And I, I've written a check for $750 to, to reimburse that. And I, I, I would understand if you want to fire me, if you need to fire me. <laughs> Supervisor's like, what? <laughs> Who are you? What just happened? He's like, no, man, keep your money. I'm not going to fire you. Like, I'm excited. This is incredible. And... Uh, and he's like, you keep your job. And so he kept his job. Now, the thing is, it was a union job. And so with union jobs, and I don't know this you know, from experience, but he was telling the story. He said that in union jobs, basically, if it, the longer you're there, the more seniority you have. And the more seniority you have, the less of the bad jobs you have to do. And so um, he had been there for 13 years. He had tons of seniority. But his bosses are like, Dan's a yes man now. Like Dan's one of those Jesus people, so we can get him to do all of these bad jobs. And they would give him all of these bad jobs and he wouldn't bump them down to the people under him. He'd be like, okay, thank you. That's, I'm so happy for this job. So happy I wasn't fired. And he would go do that job and he would kill it. And he would knock it out. And then he'd come back so happy, like I did it, it's done. So his bosses loved him and were using him like crazy, but then all of his coworkers hated him because he was making them look bad and, and he wasn't passing things down and they thought that he was trying to prove something or get him fired or whatever. And so he was in this tough situation and he's having these conversations with him. He's like, listen, guys, I'm not doing this. I'll bump him down if you want me to bump him down. I'm not trying to hurt you or make you lose your job. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm a new man. I've been changed by Jesus. And so over the course of two years, he's telling people over and over and over again about Jesus. And in his story, in his words, he said, after two years, I lost count of how many people came to know Christ. How many people were born again? He said one day his supervisor called him on his day off while he was at home. And he's like, listen, Dan, I, I need you to help me understand. Like, why are you the way you are? This makes no sense whatsoever. And, and then he said, I, I know you're going to tell me it's because of Jesus, but I don't understand that. 
Like, what does that mean? It's because of Jesus. And so, so Dan starts sharing the gospel with him on the phone. And then eventually the guy just comes over, his supervisor comes over to his house. He sits on the porch and Dan's explaining what it means to have Christ save you and then rule and be above all in your life. And he shares this and through tears as he's weeping, his supervisor comes to Christ. That is what work is all about. That's the ultimate goal. It's infused with new purpose, with new priorities, with new meaning, with new motives and all of this stuff. It's driven by Christ. But listen, it doesn't just lead to your flourishing. It leads to the flourishing of everyone else around you as well. We don't exist in isolation. We exist in community. And so life to the fullest is not just about you. Life to the fullest is about all of the people around you who desperately need to know the author of life. And so as we work for Jesus and as we give it our all and as we're honest and joyful and happy, and we don't gossip about our bosses, we don't complain about the work, we don't whine and, and all of this kind of stuff. As we do that, we make him look as good as he actually is. And other people are drawn to him. Bless you. When we work wholeheartedly for Christ, we won't just do a good job, but we'll lead other people to him. That's what it's all about. He infuses our work with new motives. He infuses it with new meaning. And that leads to revolutionary, transformative joy in our communities. So my challenge for you today is work for him. My challenge for you today is in whatever you do, do it for him, for his glory, for your reward, and for the good of those around you. Would you stand? Let's close together in response.